This morning I want to do three things with this sermon. I want to open with an illustration. That's pretty typical of sermons. You have some sort of opening illustration that people can say, okay, I see that picture. And then you're going to deliver the sermon based on that picture. So I want to open with an illustration, which is chapter 34 and 35. I'm going to deliver Jeremiah's sermon. And then I'm going to have a few points of application. At the end, I'm going to invite you, if you want to, to come forward and uh, speak with the Lord. You can, of course, do that from your seat. Uh, But sometimes when you have a sense of God speaking to you, it's helpful to have some kind of movement. It's much like when you pray, you can get the same audience with God if you're sitting down or you're lying down or you're kneeling or you're standing up. But sometimes just kneeling produces an um, opportunity in your mind to be more focused. And so I'm trusting that God is going to use this word as he did in Jeremiah's time to bring some kind of conviction for, for many of us. And for some of you all, it will be helpful to somehow be able to move forward and think about being more obedient as we look at this particular text. The other thing I want to mention uh, before we look at chapter 34 and 35 is just to remember what we've said before about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a pastor who's delivering a series of sermons to church-going people. He's not a prophet like Jonah. Jonah was meant to go out to Nineveh, the non-church-going crowd. But Jeremiah has pulled his pulpit into the temple and he's looking and he's delivering something not to the culture. He is not delivering a sermon for the person you wish was here today. He's delivering a sermon for you. People inside the church. So as we begin looking at this, let's uh, pray once again. Lord, uh, you are mighty to save. And you are mighty to move. And it's not going to be a a delivery by a pastor. It's not even going to be the reading of a word or reading of a sermon. These are just conduits for the work of that you you will do by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. So we need to be open to hear and to move in a more Godward direction because of your word delivered today. And I pray that that happens for your name's sake. Amen. Well, chapter 34 and chapter 35 serve as the sermon illustration. They're not arranged chronologically. In fact, one of the most difficult things when you're reading through the the book of Jeremiah is you naturally think these things are happening in sequence, but they're not necessarily happening in sequence. But they're arranged by the author to say, I want to arrange a stark contrast between two different groups. And so he puts chapter 34 and chapter 35 side by side. It's, It's helping people understand what it really means to be obedient. 
What, is it, what does it really mean to follow the commands of our Father? Chapter 34, let's set the scene. The Babylonians are invading Judah. And so they're, as a typical army, they're taking over the smaller towns that they can easily occupy. But the fortified cities are walled in and they're much more difficult to overtake. And the Babylonians are, are having a siege against Jerusalem. And during this siege, the king, Zedekiah, literally cuts a covenant between himself and the Lord. And the covenant is this. We are promising that we're going to free all of the Jewish slaves that we've owned. And so, just like in Abra- what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 17, he cut a covenant. He took an animal and he cut the animal in half. And then he would lay one half of the animal on one side and then the other half of the animal on the other side and the blood would sort of run down to the center. And the two people who are making the covenant would walk in between these two animal parts as if to say, if I don't keep my half of the covenant, may it be to me as it was to these animals. So it's a serious covenant that's being cut between Zedekiah the king and all the rulers and people in uh, Jerusalem and the Lord. And the covenant is this, that we're going to free the Jewish slaves. Now back uh, in uh, Moses' law, every seven years you're supposed to free anybody that was a slave to you. Now the Jewish people hadn't been keeping this law, but for one reason or another, perhaps they fought, felt like, we're, it looks like we're losing the battle, so let's try to do something maybe to get God's favor and he'd turn the tide. Or perhaps there was so much poverty in the city, there was very little food, that the masters thought, well, we can't feed ourselves, so we can't, certainly can't feed our slaves, so we'll let them go for that reason. Or perhaps Zedekiah just thought, you know, free men fight a lot more vigorously than men who are slaves. And so if we let these people go, we're going to need them in our army pretty quickly and they'll fight with a lot more courage. Either way, this is the covenant they've made. They're going to let these people go. Now, right in the middle of the battle between Judah and the Babylonians, Egypt from the south decides to get in on the side of Judah. And so you have this massive army from Egypt that begins to move up into Judah, and all the attention of the Babylonians given to Jerusalem shifts now, because they've got a much stronger force coming from the south, and all of their attention is now going to Egypt, and the people in Judah are beginning to think, hey, this was the answer. God answered our faithful covenant. And so now the Egyptians are going to overrun the Babylonians, and things can get back to normal here in Jerusalem. And so there was a lull, or there was a, a respite in this war that was going on between Jerusalem and Babylon, and things began to get back to normal. And when the pressure was off, and things got back to normal, what happened to the slaves? <laughs> you know, guys, we need you back. I mean, I know we just finished cutting that covenant and all, but, you know, you need to be slaves again. These are the leaders, these are the rulers of God's people. 
And so they re-enslaved the people that they had promised by cutting an animal in two they would not do again. It's what you call selective obedience. Remember that? Just you're obedient when it works, looks like it's going to be working for you. You understand that concept? You certainly understand it if you're a parent. Because you probably have a child that's learned how to exercise selective obedience. I remember doing that as a child. You know, I would definitely be obedient if it looked like it was going to work to my advantage. And it's amazing how your child can turn into like a professional house cleaner. If that Saturday night, there's something that they would like for, for you to agree for them to do. And so they selectively obey just to make sure that things are going to work out for them. They really have no desire to follow what you have to say. They're just looking out for themselves, and so they're going to obey according to what's going to work for them. And that's exactly what was happening with the Jewish people. It looks like it's going to work out for them, so they're going to decide to obey. It really doesn't matter if God actually has anything to say about it. And so look at uh, the response here in chapter 34, verse 15. God speaking to his people, you recently repented and did what was right in the eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. Verse 16. But then you turned around. You turned around and what did you do? What's God's primary concern for obedience? You, you would have thought that God would have said, you turned around and you re-enslaved the people, which is what they did. But that's not God's primary concern. You, you turned around, people of God, and by not obeying me, you profaned my name. You, you caused my name to look polluted. You see, God's biggest concern is for His name. God's biggest concern is for His name. His biggest concern today is not for your name or for my name. And, and as followers of God, the, the biggest problem in promising to do one thing and then doing something different is that you're profaning God's name. If you're claiming to be a follower of God this morning and you're promising to act one way, but then you leave these doors and you go and act in a different way, the biggest problem with that is you're polluting God's name. And he's very concerned about his name. Genesis chapter 11 recounts the Tower of Babel. What, what was the problem with that tower? I mean, did God just have sort of a city ordinance? No tower above six stories, and it looks like you guys are going to get to seven, and you know, we're going to have to knock that down. Did God have some sort of architectural taste? Uh, you know, that's not really what I was looking for. I was looking for stucco. And you got a, you got brick. So let's try to let's knock that down. Try to do something else. No, that's not the problem. The problem wasn't the building. 
The problem was the motive for the building. You remember what it says? Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. Exodus. What's God's primary motive for getting the people out of Egypt? Well, if you haven't known, now now you know. It's for His name. Listen to this in Isaiah 63. The Lord who caused His glorious arm to go out to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. You see, the whole purpose of the Exodus was for people to come out and to make a worldwide reputation for God. That's what God was interested in. I'm bringing a select group of people out so that they might proclaim my name all across the globe. That's exactly what I'm building these particular people for. So they've got to obey what I have to say. So they're lifting up God's name. God is... Bringing people out of slavery into freedom. Out of darkness into light. For the purpose of His name. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua fights the first battle. Remember this? Joshua fights the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. You can remember that little song that you did in vacation Bible school. And then he goes on to fight another battle... And there's been sin in the camp. A guy named Achan stole some things that he wasn't supposed to steal. And so that when he goes off and fights that battle, he loses the battle. And Joshua comes back and says, we've lost. I can't believe it. This is what he says. Listen to his primary concern when he prays to God. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name for the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The whole purpose, God, of sending us in here is for your name. And if we're going to be defeated, Joshua's saying, what's going to happen to your name? That's the most important thing that's going on in this world. world is your name. And I want to know what's going to happen to your name. Psalm 23. You know the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? Why is God doing all these things? Why is He leading a group of people like sheep in a particular direction? He's guiding us in paths of righteousness for what? For His name's sake. I'm doing all of this for my name. Let me say this one more time. God is interested in choosing people, even today, who are primarily concerned 
in making a worldwide reputation of God's name. That's his motive. That's his motive in the Old Testament. That's his motive in the New Testament. Well, Jeremiah lives in a very self-centered church environment. It's a church that's not primarily about God. The church environment that Jeremiah lived in, the most important person in the church was the person in the pew. So the people, I know this would be hard for you to understand, they came basically saying, I need some service today. And I would like these songs, and I would like this kind of confession, and I would like this kind of style of preaching, and if those things can sort of service me, then I'm interested. And if I don't really get those things, then I'm not interested. See, Pastor, the most important thing about what's happening in church today is me and my seat. Can you understand even that kind of environment? I've got to be comfortable. I've got to be served. I've got to get all of my needs met. There was no sense of coming in and saying, God, I've been about me all week. And I've got to have at least one hour to reorient my whole thinking just around you. That wasn't the kind of environment Jeremiah lived in. He lived in a very self-centered environment. And I admire Jeremiah as a preacher because he, he's never giving up. I mean, he goes through some low times, and we've talked about them. But he, but he never gets to the pulpit and just goes, forget it. He's always sort of looking around the culture. He's trying to figure out what kind of sermon illustration might be able to get to sort of throw some cold water in the face of his congregation saying, wake up, people, you're, miss, you're missing life out here. And he finds his illustration for his two-faced people in the pews in the Rechabites. This very unusual nomadic group serves as the sermon illustration, chapter 35. You know what happens when an army comes. An army comes into an area and people immediately are being displaced. And so you have refugees even today. If you go to Iraq or you go to Somalia, you go to other places, this army comes in and some village or people group gets displaced and they're huddled around some kind of border or some place where they might get some food or they might get some water, some kind of protection. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Babylonians are coming in and all of the people who sort of lived out in the country are fleeing to the cities. They've got to get to some safe location. And Jerusalem is a walled city so we can get inside and close the gate and maybe we can have some protection. And so these nomads come into Jerusalem and set up their tents inside the walls looking for protection. And probably these people were metal workers. And they roamed around the countryside and would set up outside of cities and they would do the metal work that was needed and then they'd move on to another city. And the reason they lived this kind of existence was that their father, 250 years ago, had said, if you're going to be a Rechabite, this is how you're going to live. I just want you to imagine that for a moment. One man, 250 years ago, said, if you're going to be a Rechabite, this is how you're going to live. You're not going to drink wine. You're not going to plant anything. You're not going to be a gardener. 
You're not going to build a house. You're going to live in tents. That's what you're going to be if you're going to be a Rechabite. It would be like if, if I was following, because I'm a Phillips, something that somebody said, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather said in 1750. You appreciate that? 250 years ago, somebody that I don't have a picture of and no knowledge of other than just history made a statement and now I'm living a certain way just based on this guy's statement 250 years ago. Well, God instructs Jeremiah to bring this group, the house of the Rechabites, into the house of the Lord. You feel the, the, the tension building. I mean, it's very easy to know who the Rechabites are. People that are coming out of the tents, the nomads, and here they are coming up to the temple. They're walking up the steps, and they're going into this inner chamber where everybody can see them. All eyes on Jeremiah leading this troop of nomads up into the temple. What's he up to? I mean, he's done so many things already. Let's pay attention. So a crowd begins to gather around, and they're sitting around this table with a small clan of Rechabites and Jeremiah. And just on the next... Next row out, all these people crowding in to see what's happening here. Verse 5, Jeremiah does something very unusual. He sets before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And he says, drink up, boys. Can you imagine, just for a moment, the pressure of being a Rechabite at that moment? I mean, you're you're just the poor little nomad. And you've come to the great city. And it's providing protection, so you, you, you better fall in line here. Or whether they knew Jeremiah or not, he's a leader. I mean, he's staring us down. He's he's looking us in, in our eyes and he's saying, go ahead and have a drink. And he's obviously the person in authority here. So, so, so are we going to bend because of his authority? Perhaps um, they're just in a different culture. I mean, I don't know, maybe they were walking around and they had heard the little jingle, you know, what happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, when you're inside the walled city, you can kind of do whatever you want. You just have to sort of live according to your lifestyle when you get outside. And so were they going to bend underneath that kind of pressure? Or all eyes... Jeremiah, the priests, the people, they're all staring down. They know exactly how the Rechabites are supposed to live. And they're looking at these people saying, is he going to have a drink? Just appreciate being in that kind of pressure. What's going to win out? What's what's going to cause them to make a decision and you see their answer in verse 6 through 10 but they answered 
We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all of your days, that you may, li- may, you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, our father, and all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all of our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field. We live in tents. And we have obeyed. And we have done all that our Father commanded us to do. <laughs> it was a no-brainer for the Rechabites. I mean, they rattled off what they were going to do like they were talking about their times table. Oh yeah, well we've been asked this question lots of times, and this is the answer. No no thinking, no hesitation, just, oh yeah, well, okay. This is what we do, we've been doing this forever. We follow the commands of our Father. They're looking at Jeremiah. They're looking at the city of Jerusalem. They're looking at all the crowd. And they're saying, thank you for the offer, but no thanks. No thanks because I don't live by your authority. I don't live by your pressure. I don't live by your culture. I'm completely called by something else. And I'm going to follow that something else no matter what it costs me here. And Jeremiah has a sermon illustration. Because all the people who are claiming to follow God Almighty and follow in His commands and make covenants and make promises are saying, when it's not convenient for me, God, I'm really not going to follow that anymore. What a stark contrast. Point two, Jeremiah's sermon. I'll just read it to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, the command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. And I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds. Do not go after other gods. Then you too, you will dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear. You did not listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, of Rechab, have kept their command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. Point three, application. Number one, this is, most of you would be happy to hear this. I do not think that this story is a command for you to go sell your house, live in a tent. Never have a garden and never have a drink. Some of you are going, I'm a visitor here and I thought he was going to lay down the law there on that one. 
I don't think that's the point of looking at these people. The point is to look at these people as an example. Eugene Peterson says this, the Rechabites are not entertainment, but an example. Let them show you how badly and boringly you live and how well you can live. Your problem is not that you are incapable, but that you are lazy. There's not a single person at Christ Community Church who's not up to living consciously and deliberately as a child of God and then practicing the distinctive disciplines that support and preserve a faith, a life of faith. But you have let your lives get flabby. You have ignored the best things that have ever been said to you, God's Word, and you have let the chatter and gossip of the crowd fill your ears. Are you flabby? Are are you really consumed by the chatter and the gossip of this world? That, that, That just occupies so much of your time listening that what God has to say is just so small. Or, or you said something, oh, I hear these commands. I, you know, I'm just going to get grace at the end. I, I can't keep them. That's, that's a dangerous place to be. Is, is there some sort of command? You, you would know it. God is asking you to keep. It might be about gossip. It might be about greed. Something that, that everyone should keep, but it's something that you know is a, is, it's an issue for you. Is there some sort of command that is really not an issue for anybody else, but you just know God's impressing it upon your heart. You need to turn away from that. You need to move away. You need to be obedient. And yet you've just gotten flabby. You've gotten lazy saying, ah, just get, tomorrow I promise, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to start. And you've been saying it for a year or a decade. Second application, I think that God is interested, just as interested in his name today and in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. He's still looking for people who want to make a worldwide reputation for him. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach us to pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be not my name, but thy name. That's the most important part of any prayer. That centers the rest of your prayer around the one person you need to be praying to or for in some fashion. God, I would like for you to act in some way for your name. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing all nations in my name. Acts 15, remember that tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And James stands up and says this, 
Men and brethren, listen to me. Peter has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So my question for you today is whose reputation or resume are you building? I mean, who are you working for? Are you working for your retirement? Working for your family? Working for your reputation or your resume? Are you working for God Almighty? Are you willing to put everything I just mentioned on the line for His reputation? Does His name... And his worldwide reputation matter than anything else in your life. Are people looking at your life and giving praise to God or to you? Which one of those are you seeking? Finally, God is equally disgusted by people in the New Testament as he was in the Old who claim to be one way and yet act like another. God isn't interested in posers. You know what a poser is? Maybe I just know that because I have high school students in my house. Oh, he's a poser. I mean, he's, he's posing as one thing, but Dad, if you really knew him, he's another thing. He's an imposter. He says all of these things, but if you saw him around, he's really very different in the crowd. Any posers here? Any people who've sat around the table and they know exactly how they should act. But the pressure got to them. The crowd of their high school, the crowd of their college, the crowd of their colleagues, just they caved in underneath the pressure. They knew exactly what they should be doing, but they just were not able to follow through. They're pretending to be one way. They're posing to be Christians, but they're really not. wonder if any businessman here acts one way when they're in Wilmington and a different way when they're out of town. You see, you just get out of town, you get out of your culture, and nobody's going to know that I'm looking at this magazine right now. Nobody's, no, no, nobody's going to know if I'm buying this movie off this Holiday Inn television set. Nobody's going to see where I'm going. I can, I can act one way in Wilmington, but when I get outside of my culture, I'm free to act a different way. Anybody here cracking or bending or snapping underneath the pressure? That they're really more interested in what men have to say about you than what God has to say. Titus 1, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, 
They claim to know God, but they deny their action. They, but their, by their actions, they deny Him. Listen, they are detestable. Not, you know, they've got some issues. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Revelation 3, Jesus looks at one particular church. Maybe he's looking at you this morning and he's saying, I know your deeds. I know you, I know you have a reputation. I know you have a reputation for being alive, but I know, and maybe nobody else knows, you're dead. Wake up! Wake up! Here is your chance to live! Repent! Turn around! The Rechabites are willing to live on some man's word 250 years ago. You have the eternal word of God that will stand forever. Wake up! Here it is! Follow after it! It's hard to really get the gospel in here at this point because what I'm afraid of the gospel is that you would just cling to the cross in a way that would be unhealthy. And I mean that by this, by just coming to the cross and saying, it just doesn't matter what I've done, he's going to forgive me. And in one sense, we're all thankful that that is definitely true. But Jesus is talking about people in Revelation 3 who already understand the cross. And somehow they've fallen asleep. They're pretending to be Christ followers, but they're posers. And He's telling these people, wake up! Or I might come. And you won't know when it's going to be. I began the sermon saying I was just going to do these three things. It's going to give you a sermon illustration. That's the Rechabites. I'm going to deliver Jeremiah's sermon. I gave you at least three points of application. And now I'm going to invite you to respond. Again, you, you can sit in your chair and have a conversation between you and the Lord, but repenting is turning around, walking in a certain way, and then saying, no, God, I'm going to walk in this way. And although you can do that internally where you're sitting, sometimes it's helpful to be able to say, Physically, this morning, God, I remember that October in 2008. I, I came, I walked forward, and I recommitted myself to this thing that I've just really 
not been obedient to. That might help solidify it in your own mind and, and with your own feet. 